Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. The last time we met, and I know, I want to say last week, but I'm not going to lie to you, it's been another break. This time because I started a new job and it sort of moved around my schedule a bit, but now I'm finally back. But hey, if this podcast makes me some money, who knows, I'll quit that job and maybe who knows. I'll start putting out a podcast every day. But until then, we're going to stick with the one a week and I promise you it'll start being once a week again, just like it used to be. But anyway, last time we met, we covered the first major conflicts of the Warring States period as we saw the three Jins fall apart as the Zhao and Wei began to just fight each other. That conflict saw one invasion of a random state, confusingly also named Wei as well, which then led to a four-state conflict. Then on the other side of the realm to the east, the Qi state were beginning to have their moment in the sun. They were looking to take over countless smaller states, and we're going to get into that a little bit more today because these two stories are about to become very intertwined. But before we dive in, I want to elaborate on the point of the Qi. Everybody is fighting for total control. But nobody at this point, and honestly, quite rightly so, but nobody's going to go out of their way to overthrow the dynasty. The Zhou court has so little authority or power or anything, if they even have anything, that taking them over would effectively just give you the small piece of land that they still hold. You know, before, if you took over the Xia, well, you became the new dynasty. But now if you took over the Zhou, you would just physically hold the small piece of land that they do. To end this warring states period, you will have to conquer everyone. The Qi are currently the betting favorites to do so at the moment, but they are still worlds away from being able to take over everyone. So without further ado, The History of China, Episode 16, The Warring States Period, Part 4, The Way, The Way, Got Out of the Way. Born in 400 BC, King Hui of the Wei State is one of those larger-than-life characters that will help push this story in a myriad of new directions. In 369 BC, King Hui of the Wei took the reins of the Wei State. I know, that's a mouthful, but King Hui, H-U-I of the Wei, W-E-I, became the leader. Yes, the three Jin's Wei State, by the way. In 369, however, he would not have been known as King Hui. No, no. He would have still been known as Marquis Hui of Wei. Not King yet. Anyway, nothing brings people together like sharing a common enemy. All of last episode, it was just conflict after conflict within the old Three Jin's camp. But enter the Qin state. We had mentioned this far west state before. We've mentioned them quite a lot. They were the ones who would become famous for taking legalism to heart. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, we'll have to wait and see. But in 366 BC, the Han and Wei states of the three old Jin's got together and wanted, you know, get the gang back together and wanted to take a crack at the pretty introverted Qin state. Look, were the Qin state, were they really introverted? No. But they had not been really engaging much at all in the wars of the time. Anyway, 
the Han and Wei launched a two-pronged attack on the Qin state, meeting the Qin army at a place known as Shermen, which is, by the way, just inside of the Qin territory. The allied Han and Wei forces had been utterly dominant in their own spheres of influence. We've seen this firsthand. They forced out, well, I mean just killed off all the other Jin families. They took over the Jin duke system and even took land from their close neighbors. But it was at Shermen that they, and more particularly the Wei, met their match. Probably to the Wei state's surprise, the Qin state was not a pushover. And yeah, even though they had not been engaging in much of the wars, they weren't a pushover. As Sun Tzu remarked in The Art of War, quote, Never start a battle. You don't have full confidence in your own victory. End quote. Furthermore, seemingly unknown to the allied Han and Wei forces, the Qin state were a lot more serious about this upcoming encounter than they would have thought or would have hoped. In the old records of the day, we know that the Qin military had set up um, quite the promotion system. The Qin army had put in place a system that would see promotions given to soldiers of any rank based on how many enemy heads they took during a given battle. Look, practically, how do you like, you know, I don't know, sever and carry heads during an ongoing fight? Do you take them off after? But then how would you know who was who and who killed who? Ancient battle was just so brutal. It was in-person combat, so I don't know. Maybe they did what the later Mongolians did and just, you know, cut off the left ear. Who knows? But regardless, the Qin met the combined Han and Wei army at Shermen. And I assume the Qin army had a lot of promotions to give out after this battle because they absolutely and thoroughly destroyed the Han and Wei attacking forces. It wasn't like a one-off near-wrong thing, no, because from all accounts, the Qin eviscerated this attacking force, and it was the Wei that took an almost irreversible hit. The Qin then immediately moved back east and seized the Xihe, the west of the river region, that the Wei had taken last episode. But they weren't done yet, because the Wei's army was destroyed. Who was going to protect the Wei territory? And the Qin just began to pour into the Wei territory. But you know this story. There's always a twist. And as I said, common enemies make people really good friends really quickly. And it was the Zhao who ended up posturing and pushing troops back into the Wei state, not to invade them, no, but to counter the seemingly unstoppable Qin invasion of Wei. So out of nowhere, the Zhao, who were just at war with the Wei some ten-odd years before, were now helping them. But yeah, you could view this through the more pessimistic lens. And you may be probably right in thinking that the Zhao were just helping the Wei, who were their neighbor, because they probably sat back and saw how utterly decisive the Qin state were and realized that if, look, if the Wei actually fall, which many in the Zhao state, yeah, would have probably been pretty hyped to see, but they realized that if the Wei actually fell to the Qin, then this shockingly strong and ruthless Qin army would now be their next door neighbor. And that buffer zone that the Wei state acted as would be gone. But who knows? 
What do I know? But anyway, the Shihua region is now gone from the Wei's grip, and the Qin state are now headfirst into the Warring States period. Now in 362 BC, just two years after their shocking and foundational rattling defeat, the Wei state under Marquis Hui of Wei decided to exchange lands with their exes from the three Jins, remember the Han and the Zhao, to make their respective land sizes more rational. Because remember last episode, it was the Zhao who began to invade others because they were so intimidated by the Wei's land grabs. But now the Wei's army were, well, in trouble. So maybe this was as a thank you for saving them. But it also may have been a, you know, let's get ahead of this whole our army is ruined and we can't hold this land issue. But who knows? And all of this was happening while the Qin army clipped another victory against the Wei in the same year, 362 BC. So with that second loss, the Wei decided, alright, it's time to move our capital because look, we can't beat these guys and they moved their capital further east, i.e. away from the Qin state, to give some more space between them and this, so far, unbeaten Qin army. More on Marquis Hui of Wen, though. While so far he's been a good leader with one glaring and, yeah, albeit devastating loss, internally and domestically, he was quite the figure. Within the court of Wei, Marquis Hui of Wei, was a huge proponent of the arts and philosophy. Think back to the 14th episode, which was all about the philosophies. And look, if you haven't heard it yet, highly recommend that you go back and check it out. But yeah, in that episode, I talked about a man named Meng Zhe. Now in summary, he was the second sage for Confucianism and was a big proponent in centralizing the philosophy that was Confucianism. Because remember, Confucius didn't start it. It was a sort of ideology built around things he said, but all the compilation and all the centralization of the ideas didn't happen until after he was dead. And one of the people that was a huge player in that was Meng Zhe. But anyway, Marquis Hui of Wei hosted Meng Zhe himself in the Wei court. And the conversations that he had with Meng Zhe, he being... Marquis Hui of Wei, they're recorded in a book with Meng Zhe's name. Now, I could go all day talking about this, but unfortunately, it is a huge tangent to what we're talking about today. But if you want to know more, there'll be a link in the website where you can see and read more about this utterly fascinating conversation. But Marquis Hui of Wei, even with his relationship with the second Confucian sage, would soon be undone by another renowned thinker. For some reason or another, Marquis Hui of Wei decided that it was time the Wei state got their swagger back. Eight years had passed since the shocking defeat at Shermen, so in the meantime, new armies had been raised, and it was time to get that aforementioned swagger back. So in 354 BC, the Wei state up and attacked the Zhao. Yeah, because, well, yeah, the Zhao bail you out. But that favor doesn't keep the good graces alive too long in the Warring States period. But the Wei were back. Swagger and all. Marquis Hui of Wei and his forces cut right through the Zhao defenses, and they drove them right to the gates of the Zhao capital at the city of Handan, 
and began to besiege it in 353 BC. The Zhao, look, in blunt fashion, we're not going to win this. But to the east, the state of Qi saw a chance for something. Meng Zhe, the extremely influential Confucian scholar, might have been in the Wei court's ear. But Sun Bin, the great-great-great-grandson of Sun Zhu, and someone often actually credited with writing portions of the art of war, was in the Qi court's ear. Remember, this is ancient times. There is one army, and all communications and supply chains move as fast as a horse. So Sun Bin and the Qi state sat back and postulated that if the entire Wei army is in the Zhao state, a state that the Qi, by the way, had a tepid alliance with, then no one was defending the Wei capital. So what do you think happens next when an alleged co-author of The Art of War and author of Sun Bing's Art of War, respectively, gives an idea? Unsurprisingly, his strategy worked perfectly. The Sun family is the cream of the crop when it comes to military strategy. Heck, they even wrote the book on it. Before I continue, though, I've been asked to include more details about some of the battles by a few listeners. So, here's what happens next. The Qi army, which was an astounding 80,000 men strong, was split into two not evenly sized forces. Sun Bin took the smaller contingent south. And yes, maps of this battle will be on the website. But anyway, Sun Bin moves south at Ping Ling. But he doesn't go there to win. No. Instead, the mastermind strategist moves to Ping Ling to intentionally lose. Or at least make the Wei commander, a man named Pang Juan, think that the Qi were weak and realistically couldn't beat his own forces. If the Qi are weak, Pang Zhuang and the Wei army could just keep up the siege at Handan with no issues. And Pang Zhuang fell for this trap. In his mind, he beat the Qi army at Ping Ling and soon called more and more of his forces to Handan to keep the siege of the Zhao capital going. But the fact is the Zhao were still hanging on by the skin of their teeth. And they were taking extremely heavy losses as they tried desperately to hold their capital city. Now what Pang Juan and the Wei army, which were now almost fully amassed at Handan, didn't realize is that the Qi feigned a defeat at Pingling. The Qi were not beaten. They just made it look like they were. With the Wei state fully taking the bait, Sun Bin and his full strength and very much not defeated army have a clear and unopposed road to the Wei capital at Daliang. Boom. Sun Bin had faked out the Wei generals into amassing all of their troops in a whole other state thinking that they were safe only to, in turn, leave their own back door open. Wei scouts soon reported back to Pang Juan that the Qi were beginning to attack the capital city. Realizing that he had very little time, he took his extremely well-trained cavalry, left his slow-moving supply system and infantry at Handan, and hightailed it home. By the time the Wei cavalry under Pang Juan got to the Yellow River, they were utterly exhausted. 
And that's when Sun Bin's 80,000-man army at a place called Guiling pounced in a large ambush. It is estimated that the Qi state gave the way around 21,000 casualties, while only suffering 9,000 themselves. Pang Juan, the Wei general, was able to escape back on his own, back to the state of Wei, but while he may have lived, the Wei state was not looking so good. The intricate ruse had worked perfectly, and this battle gave rise to a well-known proverb, quote, besiege Wei to rescue Zhao, end quote. And this proverb is also included as one of the 36 strategies. It essentially means to attack a vulnerable spot to relieve pressure at some other spot. The Wei were forced to abandon their invasion of Zhao, and they themselves had to cede territory to the Zhao and Qi. Now a few years of tepid peace followed, and in 344 BC, something that we touched on last week, but nonetheless, the rulers of Qi and Wei mutually recognized each other as kings. King Wei of Qi and King Hui of Wei, in effect, declaring their independence from the Zhou court. And this is where the stories are all caught up. But the fact is, Pang Juan had not seen his last battle. Yeah, you heard me right. There's still more in his tank. Because the Warring States is a zero-sum game. And just like the invasion of Zhao some eight years after their big defeat at the hands of the Qin, the Wei, some nine years after Guiling in 342 BC, again wanted to regain their swagger. So in literally an almost deja vu situation, the Wei state, under the command of Pang Juan, again, set off with a newly replenished army and invade another one of their exes in the Three Jins. But this time, they wanted to switch it up. So the Wei invade the Han state. And just like last time, the Wei were back with their regular swagger and began to cut through the Han just like they had cut through the Zhao some nine years earlier. And just like last time, as the Wei were on the precipice of victory, Sun Bin and the Qi stepped in to confront Pang Juan and the Wei army. And this is where I get totally baffled. The Qi this time employ a military strategy known as the tactic of missing stoves, which in effect does the exact same thing that they had done last time when they were protecting the Zhao. Just like last time, and it's almost crazy because it literally in every way is playing out in almost every facet as it did last time. But Pang Juan, the Wei general, is again on the cusp of taking the enemy capital. Take the capital, war over. He is so, so, so close. But he is then informed that the Qi army is heading right back towards the Wei state. Again. And you can bet he isn't happy about hearing that news. But King Hui of Wei acts fast and appoints Prince Shen of Wei and Pang Juan as chief commander and commander respectively. They then raise a 100,000-man army. And look, obviously it's possible that these numbers are inflated, but they might be more or less accurate. Well, we don't have anything else to prove otherwise, but who knows. Nevertheless, Pang Juan is no idiot. To his credit, 
he cut through the jow easily, and only lost when he fell for a trap set by debatably one of the greatest military minds of not just that era, but of all time. Now he cut through the Han with the same ease, and the Chi were coming, but he wasn't going to fall for the same tricks. He learned a thing or two, because, well, he had seen a thing or two. So Peng Zhuan had his whole Wei army go around the Qi this time. He's not falling for any tricks this time, and his army speed marched on a beeline back to defend their own capital city. Finally, Peng Zhuang has taken some initiative in a conflict with the Qi state. Because the fact is, the Qi realistically can't ambush them now. Sun Bin of the Qi saw the very high morale of the Wei troops and realized that, look, that attempting an ambush at this moment could be potentially ruinous. Remember the art of war, which, yeah, some believe Sun Bin wrote, and yes, he did write his own version of the art of war, but we don't have it. It's been lost in history. But anyway, don't fight a battle you don't absolutely think you're going to win. And Sun Bin sees this and says, well, the Wei are back in their home territory. They have high morale. And there's not a really good chance to ambush them right now. So Sven Bin instead decides to wait. And he allowed most of his army to just stop and just rest and recalibrate. And he had them slowly move back and forth between the front line and the Chi state to slowly gather the equipment that they would one day need for an ambush, if that day ever came. Because no date was set, so they just took their time. But what now? Pang Juan got himself situated properly on his own turf this time. So now what? And this is where Sun Bin proves his place in the upper echelon of military commanders of all time. Because look, both sides have scouts. And these scouts are constantly relaying information back to their respective commanders. Sun Bin and his army had cooking stoves that could feed his 100,000-person camp. Look, not all of them were soldiers, they were servants, helpers, you know. But regardless, there were enough stoves to feed 100,000 people. But the next day, he ordered his troops cut the number of cooking stoves in half. So now they're only using enough to feed half of that. Then the next day, he had the stoves cut down again to just the amount needed to feed some 20-odd thousand troops. But he wasn't starving his army. No. These stoves would literally cook fires, and they would illuminate across the night sky. So all the way scouts see and all Pang Juan sees is a shrinking camp. Less stoves means less people there needing to be fed. And here lies Pang Juan's fatal error. He saw this and believed exactly what Sun Bin wanted him to believe, that the Qi were deserting en masse. And now, there was also many other things to this. The Wei were, well, way too confident. They had just crushed the Han, and now they see in their minds an enemy fleeing. Easy pickings, because when an enemy army flees, that's where you're really able to cut them all down. And just like he did last time, Pang Juan takes his elite cavalry and pursues a Qi army that he thinks is now small and weak. But the ruse Sun Bing pulled goes further than just some missing stoves. 
because Sun Bing wasn't one to just do something on a whim. Read The Art of War, and this guy is textbook Art of War. He pulls out every stop. As his army again pretends to be retreating, he has his army abandon and scatter some of their valuable artillery so when the Wei army, who are trailing them, find it, it will further the notion that the Qi army are in total disarray. Their camp is constantly shrinking. They're leaving behind their valuable artillery all over the road. But when was Sun Bing going to spring this trap? Well, he didn't really know. And that's what makes him a genius, because while he had to pull this ruse, he had to find the right place to spring it. But then the Qi army arrived at a place known as Ma Ling. And now at Ma Ling, there was a narrow pass shrouded in heavy forest. And boom, Sun Bin found his spot. He knows the way are right behind him, and they're going to be there at about nightfall. So he orders his own troops to cut a tree down, remove its bark, and he carved the following. Quote, Pang Juan shall die in Ma Ling Dao under this tree. End quote. And now this was a proverb spoken by the teacher of both Sun Bing and Pang Juan. What's that? Yeah, how about that plot twist? These two generals, who are fighting to the death, were classmates. History just never fails to disappoint. But eventually, Pang Zhuang, who was at the head of his army, saw the warning on the tree and just said, essentially, whatever. He scraped the message off and marched ahead anyway. But while they marched ahead, the Qi army then surrounded the way as they went through the narrow pass without being detected, and then using the torches of the Wei troops as aiming points, the Qi archers stood up and unleashed a ferocious volley, killing incredible amounts of Wei soldiers and even wounding Pang Juan himself. They just wiped out a bunch of them with arrows, but then the Qi army ran in. And probably to Pang Juan's horrifying surprise, the Qi had never deserted. And the amount of Qi troops that were now crashing right into his small force were just simply too much. Sun Bing's ruse worked again. The way were getting utterly overran, and now there is a debate around what happens next. No, there is no debate over who wins. The Qi win in both scenarios. But one side believes that upon realizing the writings on the wall, Pang Juan killed himself. But in other versions, he was actually killed immediately in the first arrow volley. Regardless, Pang Juan is dead, and the Wei are crushed again. And in almost the exact same tone as Julius Caesar finding out that Pompey had died, Sun Bin was devastated when he found out that his former classmate was dead. According to some sources, he'd actually hoped that they would make their relationship better after the battle. They were classmates, and from what we can tell, they might have been friends. Look, there was little debate that they were classmates. They were. But are the ancient Chinese sources just adding in some embellishments to make the story a little better? Maybe. Who knows? Roman history is littered with these problems, and honestly, so far, the Chinese historians have been way more accurate than the accounts of ancient Rome. And for the sake of this story, 
I'm going to believe that Swen Bin was legitimately devastated. He wasn't putting on an act to pretend to be a man of immense clemency. And I'm not going to believe that he just entirely wasn't devastated at all. I believe he was legitimately devastated that his former classmate and enemy in the field was dead. But regardless, the battle opened the floodgates for the Qi army, who soon captured Prince Shen of Wei, and by the time the Wei sued for peace, their power had been slashed by an unimaginable amount. And now look, Sun Bing would then go on, lead a couple more campaigns, and then live a life of solitude. And I've mentioned this a few times today, this episode, and I want to clarify because, well, there is nothing to really clarify. The only thing I can clarify is that there's a lot we don't know. In the episode about the art of war, I mentioned that Sun Bin is sometimes credited in the theory about the art of war that states that the art of war was a maybe written in part by Sun Tzu if he was real, but then a lot of the ideas were then elaborated upon by people like Sun Bin, and he's named in some of these theories. But what is confirmed is that Sun Bin did write a book called Sun Bin's Art of War. They're not the same. There are differences, and mainly the big difference is that Sun Bin is very pro-siege. He believes in besieging cities because, well, he's in the Warring States period. Sun Tzu wasn't. Sun Tzu says, just go around it, starve him out. Cut their water supply off. But Sun Bing understands that in this day and age, sieges are needed. But regardless, maybe he did help write the actual art of war. Or maybe he just wrote his own book. And yes, that book in large part has been lost to history. But regardless... None of that takes away from the fact that he was one of the greatest military commanders of the era, and arguably, of all time. But regardless of Sun Bin, blood was in the water, and the Wei state are bleeding, and they're bleeding fast. And a shark is picking up the trace. That shark is the Qin state. Next week, it's all about that shark. The legalist military superpower of the Qin state is rising. But just how high can they rise? So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the History of China. <laughs>